0: Well, one more time, let me welcome you uh, to Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, especially if you're visiting with us this morning. We're glad that you're here. My name is Ben Griffith. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are making our way through a series in the Gospel of Mark. And we find ourselves in Mark chapter 12, uh, which you can see printed in your bulletin this morning on page 8. I remember the first time that I heard commentators uh, on ESPN um, I can't remember exactly what they were t- who they were talking about. It may have been the early days of LeBron James or maybe the early days of, um, of, of Tom Brady. I, I don't know who it was, uh, Tiger Woods, but, but they were talking about some of these greatest athletes that have ever lived and they were referring to, to them as goats. And I had no idea why they were doing that. It sounded so rude and insulting to me. I was like, why are they referring to Tiger Woods as a goat? who does that? Um, And it it wasn't until at some point later, uh, I guess, in that broadcast that it hit me, uh, they were actually being very complimentary. Uh, To refer to someone as a GOAT is to use the acronym G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. They were calling these players the greatest of all time. Um, And sportscasters, uh, people in sports media, maybe you and I, we love to have these kinds of conversations, maybe arguments, who's the goat? Who's the greatest of all time and how, do you, and how do you measure it? What measurements and metrics do you use? Do you use number of touchdowns thrown, number of championship rings, the amount of salary that they end with? It's actually not as clear-cut as you think and so people will always be arguing over and talking about who's the goat? Who's the greatest of all time? This morning in our passage, someone comes up to Jesus and asks Jesus about the goat, except he's not an ESPN sportscaster, and so he's not not asking about what ESPN sportscasters argue about. No, this guy's a scribe. He's a Pharisee. He's a religious expert. And so he's asking about what religious experts love to argue and talk about. Um, This guy's an Old Testament expert. He knew the Old Testament law backwards and forwards. And and so it's not surprising that he comes up to Jesus and says, what is the greatest commandment of all time? Which one is the goat? (laughs) Of all of them, the Ten Commandments, all the ones we, we find in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which one's the most important? Which one's the greatest of all time? And how would we know? What metrics would we use to identify it? How many times it's mentioned? Where we find it in, the, in that particular book? Um, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had actually been arguing about this, dialoguing about it for some time, and the stakes are actually pretty high, as we're going to find out in just a moment. Well, this morning, Jesus is invited into this dialogue, invited into this uh, scribal intramural debate about which one is the greatest commandment of all time. How does he answer it? And what does his answer have to do with you and me right now? Well, let's read and find out. This is God's Word. Mark 12, beginning in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you see us this morning as we, as we truly are. You see us this morning in the range of conditions that our hearts find themselves in. Some of us very sad and heavy and weighed down. Some of us numb, confused, confused some of us wondering perhaps why we're here. Lord, in the range of conditions that you find us in this morning, we need one thing from you, and that is to hear your voice. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, great shepherd of the sheep, come and give us ears to hear our shepherd speaking to us the words of eternal life. For we pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. So in our passage this morning, Jesus settles this age-old scribal debate about which commandment is the most important, which one is the goat, which one is the greatest of all time. And here's how we're going to walk through this passage this morning. I want to ask four questions about this greatest commandment, what Jesus identifies as the greatest commandment. I want to ask, first of all, why does it matter? Secondly, what is it? Third, why is it not that great after all? And then fourthly, where does it take us? So first of all, the greatest commandment, the GOAT commandment, why does this even matter? There's a good chance that you're sitting here this morning thinking, okay, this 2,000-year-old scribal debate, this little intramural argument that they were having with themselves about which commandment is the greatest of all of the commandments, it's about as irrelevant to me as the conversation about if Tiger Woods is the greatest player or if Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. <laughs> there, like, it's hard to find something more irrelevant to where I am and what I'm feeling and what I'm experiencing right now. In view of, of where I am in my life this morning and what's heavy on my heart and what's confusing me and the, and the questions that I'm asking, whether it be a family that I'm grieving for or a marriage that's in trouble or what's going on at work or whatever it is, you might be thinking, why in the world does this matter? (laughs) Let the scribes argue about this. Let's just go home because this is so irrelevant. Well, I want you to see, brothers and sisters and friends, that it actually does matter, and it matters for reasons beyond what the scribe here was actually asking about. The scribe's question here. And Jesus' answer to it is actually deeply relevant to you this morning, right now. And I want to show you why. This scribe comes up to Jesus here, and this man is an expert in the Old Testament law. He knew it backwards and forwards so much better than you or I do right now. This was not only his religion, this was his profession. Um, God's law. In the Old Testament, and especially the five books of Moses, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, he knew it like the back of his hand, and it was deeply important to him, deeply formative for him, and rightly so, because God's law is, is where he spells out how God's people are to live. God's law, all over his word, it clarifies what God requires of his people how God's people are to live and move and have their being in the covenant community that God has created. In the language of our Westminster Shorter, Shorter Catechism, the law for this man in the Old Testament was the only rule to direct him how he may glorify and enjoy God. But see, here's the thing. It gets complicated because by the time of the first century, when Mark was written and the scribe was alive and, and speaking with Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees had identified 613 different individual commands and requirements and laws all over the Old Testament. 613 distinct, separate commandments. So that if you had asked one of these scribes or Pharisees, what does God require of me? And how am I supposed to live? If he was honest, he would have pulled out this giant scroll full of all 613 different commandments and requirements, and said, do this and live. <laughs> Have a good day. Um, well, apparently, look, even for the scribes, this was a bit much. 613 commandments is a, is, a, is, a, is a tall order. It's a lot to handle. And so, it's not surprising, by the first century, the scribes of Jesus' day were asking this question. Is there a commandment? Is there something in the 613, maybe just one or a smaller group of commandments that that sums it all up, that kind of gets at the heart of the matter? Um, Is there one of them that's the greatest, that's kind of a summarizing principle? If all 613 commandments are kind of like a wheel, is there a hub of the wheel that all the commandments um, circle around? It's something that they all have in common, kind of a cheat sheet. Um, commandment. Is there a greatest of all time? Think about it like this. If you want to repaint the walls in your kitchen, let's say a, some kind of shade of light blue, but you don't, exa- you don't know exactly what shade yet, probably what you're going to do is you'll go to Sherman Williams or Home Depot or something like that, and you'll, you'll go look for the, the shade of paint that you want to find. But you instantly walk in there and you realize, this is going to be a lot harder than I thought because the wall is full of color samples. There's like 600 different color shades of light blue. You thought, I just want light blue, but there's like 600 different light blues to choose from. And so you finally pick one out, um, and you go tell the paint expert this is what you want. You know what's probably not going to happen? He's not going to go back to some shelf and pull that exact color off of the shelf because he hasn't mixed it up yet. Probably what he's going to do is he's going to go find a a base color, probably white or some shade of white, but a base color that he's gonna start with, he's gonna put it in his mixing machine, he's gonna add the exact right amount of dye to that base color, mix it all up, shake it up, and out comes the exact shade of color that you want. In the same way, the scribes, they didn't have a wall full of paint colors or samples to choose from. They had 613 different commandments and requirements. And their question was, what's the base color of all of the ones here? What do they all have in common? What ties them all together? What's the base color to all of what God is requiring and asking in his word? That's what the scribe is asking here. And I think he's actually asking it sincerely. There's, there's some debate among commentators about if he's trying to trip Jesus up here. But Jesus responds to him, um, to his question, sincerely. Sincerely. Here's the thing, though. Here's why this matters. Here's why this matters. What the scribe is asking, whether he realizes it or not, is this. What is at the heart of who God is and what he wants me to be? When you boil it all down, at the very rock-bottom core of it, who is God and who does he want me to be? Because, you see, that's what God's law is. God's law is a revelation of his character. It's a revelation of what he's like. His laws reveal his character and show us what he's like, but they also reveal what our character is supposed to be like and what he's calling us to be like. And so it's an incredibly important question of all of the commandments and all that God has revealed to us in his word all of the requirements, all of the do this and don't do that, is there something in common, something that gets to the heart of who he is and who he wants us to be? Is there something that he's really after? Is there something that God is truly interested in at rock bottom, something that he wants me to be like deep down because it's what he's like deep down? And that's an incredibly important question to ask. Because here's the thing. You're going to live out of your answer to that question. This last week, you have lived out of your answer to that question, whether you realize it or not, consciously or subconsciously, your idea of what God is like and what he wants you to be like. Think about it like this. In in our house, we, we have three young children and... I like, to have a, I like to keep a clean house just like anybody else does. I don't think I'm a total Nazi, but I do have a few rules and things like, you know, don't eat Cheetos on the couch, and don't leave your underwear in the hallway, and, and just clean up after yourself, put your dishes in the dishwasher, things like that. We've got a few rules and just kinda ways to live in the Griffith household that our kids still haven't gotten yet, but they're there. Now, how tragic would it be, though, For me to send the message to my kids that deep down, at rock bottom, what I really want, what I'm truly interested in, is not them, it's a clean house. What if that's the message I'm sending to my children? How tragic would it be? You see, because it gets at what I'm really like deep down and who I want them to be and what our relationship is like. And so it's a really important question. What's at the heart of what God is like and who he wants us to be? So that's why it's important. That's why it matters. Secondly, the greatest commandment, what is it? Is there one and what is it? Well, to answer the scribe, Jesus ties together. You see how he quotes two Old Testament passages that he pulls directly from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. And this first quote would have been instantly recognizable and familiar to any Israelite, to any Jew. It's one of the few Old Testament passages that has its own name. It's got its own title. It's called the Shema. That comes from this Hebrew word for hear or listen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. This was a deeply formative and central passage to the experience of every Israelite and every Jew. They all knew it. But here's what's really interesting jesus connects the shema a very familiar and well-known passage to a passage that there's evidence that it actually wasn't that it wasn't too central to the israelite experience at this point this passage from leviticus 19 it really wasn't common practice at this time to connect love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength to love your neighbor as yourself um But that's what Jesus does. He ties these two passages together, and Jesus says there is no commandment greater than these. These two separate commandments joined together form one commandment that is the greatest of all time. And what is it? Love. Love God and love your neighbor. Love in two different directions. Love that flows vertically, first of all, and then flows out horizontally. Love that's directed up and then love that's directed out. Love for the one that's above you and love for the ones that are around you. Love for God and love for what looks the most like God in your world. And that's the people all around you, the people made in his image and likeness. Jesus is saying that love is at the heart of who God is and who he's made us to be. That it's the base color that's found in every shade and variation of commandment and requirement that God has ever given. That love is the heartbeat in every law and instruction. It's the final destination where they're all trying to get you to go. Love is the goal. It's the culmination. It's the point of all of God's law. Love for God And love for people. And notice when Jesus talks about love, he's not just saying, it's not just synonymous with warm, fuzzy feelings or or positive regard towards God and towards others. No that the passage that Jesus is quoting, the Shema, this is talking about love that is wholehearted and complete and continual. That's universal and comprehensive, undiluted, unlimited, unconditional, unceasing, uninterrupted devotion to God. First of all, that's expressed in love and charity towards other people. That's not just warm, fuzzy feelings. That's all of you all of the time. In fact, it's more than that. It's all of every part of you all of the time. All of your heart. All of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. These four areas, they make up who you are as a person. And they're so deeply woven and interconnected that where one of them goes, the rest of them is going to go. But notice how Jesus parses them out. And he says, first of all, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Meaning all of your devotion. All of your worship. This is what you're bent around. This is what you want the most. It's what you desire at your very bottom. It's, what, it's it's your ambition and your motive. It's what you're focused on. You were made to worship something like this, and you are going to. It's just a matter of what it is. Your heart is going to be bent towards something that you love the most. and And Jesus says, The greatest commandment is, first of all, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. He's the sole object of your worship. But it doesn't stop there. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul. Well, what's the difference? Well, to put it simply, this is the realm of your emotions. This is your emotional life, your personality, your disposition, your posture. (laughs) You see, it's true that in general, across the board, how you feel is deeply connected to what you care about. Your emotions are like billboards of the soul. They're going to display to the world what you care about inside. And so to love the Lord your God with all of your soul is to have every facet of your personality and your emotional life deeply in tune and in harmony with God's glory and his truth and his beauty with what motivates you down at the very bottom, your core motivations. Not only all of your heart and all of your soul, but all of your mind, too, Jesus says. In other words, this is your thought life. Not just what you think, but how you think. How you interpret reality. Your mental grid. What you daydream about. Your imagination. When your mind wanders off, where does it go to? It goes to the center of gravity in your life and in your experience. What would it be like for your mind to naturally and automatically, without trying to, to wander off towards the glory and beauty of God. And then the last category is your strength. So all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And notice these first three categories, they're all internal. You can't really see them. They're all inside of you. But this last area, your strength, this is the all-encompassing fourth category Of how those internal qualities are expressed on the outside. So, in other words, it's how you live. It's what you do with your stuff, with your time and your resources, your abilities, with what you have. It's how you live. So, heart, soul, mind, strength, all of you and every part of you, all of the time. Now, you would think. That sounds so all-encompassing that if I love God like that, there's just not going to be any left to give over to somebody else. But Jesus doesn't say that. Love is not a zero-sum game. It's not like if you give it all to God that you have none to, left to give over to your neighbor. It actually works the exact opposite way. The more that you fall in love with God, the more you actually have to give and to love towards others because you're not in love with yourself anymore. The more that you're bent around God and his glory, the more that you're not bent around you and your glory and your agenda, which frees you up then to love and to serve and to give yourself to the people around you. Love for God and love for others. So Jesus says this is the heartbeat of the law. This is the destination where every command leads. This is what God is really after. This is the base color in all of the various shades and colors of the different commandments. Love. Now notice the scribe here, he seems to get it. He seems to be on the same page with Jesus, at least for a little while, because he says something that's probably more profound than he intended it to be. In verse 33, he agrees with Jesus, and he says, You're right. I agree, loving God all of the time with all, with all of you and every part of you is, and, and expressing this love with love towards others is much more, he says, quote, much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. What's he saying here? Look, he's putting his finger on something that may be more profound than he realizes. He's putting the, his finger on the fact that a person can do all of the religious things on the outside. A person can engage in all of the religious externals without, being engaging, without engaging in love on the inside. And when you do that, or if you do that, it is, in the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, nothing. This man realizes you can offer up whole burnt offerings to God. And if it's not motivated by love, it's just a dead cow. In the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And even if I give away everything that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, in other words, if I jump up on that altar and I give away my very self, but if I'm not doing it out of love, I'm gaining nothing. You can give away your time and your resources and be doing all of the externally right and good religious moral things. But if they're not an expression of you giving yourself away to God in love, then it doesn't matter. And it's not accomplishing what you think it's accomplishing. You can be doing all the right things on the outside, but be missing the one thing on the inside. Think about it like this. You could... You could own the greatest sports car on the planet with more horsepower than, I don't know, a jet, a jet engine. It's the greatest sports car with the greatest engine underneath its hood. And you could be in the parking lot revving that thing up to, I don't know, a few billion RPMs. And it's so loud and it's so powerful and it's so impressive. But you're not going anywhere because it's in neutral. And it's so impressive and loud, but you're not going anywhere. (laughs) And Jesus is saying that love is what kicks that engine into drive and makes what you're offering and living and giving actually do something and go somewhere. So in thinking about the greatest commandment, we've asked, why does it matter? We've seen that it does matter greatly. We've seen what it is, that it's love. All of you, all the time, and every part of you, now, let's pause for a moment. Um, I want to ask you a question. Does this sound like a good place to wrap up the sermon? You might be thinking, that sounds great. I could get to lunch early. Um, it seems like a decent stopping point, after all, doesn't it? I mean, we've, ex- we've explained why it's important, and we've explained what it is. It might be really easy here to just say, go and do likewise. Amen, let's pray. And apparently the scribe, he thought, he thought the same thing. He thought that's where this conversation ends. Um, He's talking to Jesus, and at this point in the conversation, the scribe says, "Great, sounds like that about covers it. We're on the same page. I totally agree with you." Verse thirty-two, he says, "You're right, teacher." In other words, there's nothing more to say. We're great. And at this point, the scribe pulls out his phone and orders his Uber because he's ready to get out of there. It's done. There's nothing left to talk about. And that's when Jesus says something that would have stopped him in his tracks. And it needs to stop us in our tracks too. He says this. He looks him in the eyes and he says, You're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far. In other words, what Jesus is telling this man is, You've just demonstrated an incredible knowledge of God's Word. You know God's law backwards and forwards. That's one thing. Another thing, you've readily agreed with my assessment that love for God and love for people is at the heart of the law, that it's at the heart of who God is and what He wants from us. And you've just responded in a beautiful and profound, really it seems to be gospel-oriented way that demonstrates that you understand The complex relationship between law and love. You've just demonstrated all of that. And Jesus says, in view of all of that, in view of all of your good answers and correct understanding and right answers, you're still not there. You're not far, but you're still not there. He says, you're getting warmer But all of the good things that you bring to the table, even your perfect, seemingly perfect understanding of the requirement from God, even in view of that, there's still a gap. There's still a distance that remains between where you are and where the kingdom is. You're not far from the kingdom of God, he says. And all of your moral lifestyle and everything that you bring to the table can't bridge that gap. You see, the scribe, he would have been great with the first two points of this morning's sermon because he knew that this was deeply important and it mattered and he understood what it was and he thought, that's it, we're done. But he didn't see the enormous, awkward, ugly, 800-pound gorilla in the room or elephant in the room, whatever the animal is, that, what, however that goes. He didn't see that... If you actually love God with all of you are, with, with all that you are and all and all that you have to give, then the commandment's actually great. But the greatest commandment is not that great, after all, if you fail to keep it. You see, if you fail to keep the greatest commandment, the greatest one that there is, it means that you have committed the greatest sin. If you fail to love God with all that you are, all the time, and all that you have to give, it means that you are living in the greatest sin. And failure to keep the greatest commandment deserves the greatest condemnation and the greatest judgment. You see, the greatest commandment is not that great after all if you can't obey it. It's not good news at all. In fact, it's the worst news. The scribe was profoundly aware of the scriptures. He knew what was in God's law. He knew what was in God's word, but he didn't yet know what was in his heart. Because it hadn't hit him yet that he hadn't kept the greatest commandment for 30 straight seconds in his whole life, and that's being generous. Jesus tells him that he's not far. He says, You understand the requirement you just don't understand that you can't meet the requirement. And the distance that remains between where you are and where the kingdom is, is your awareness that you are incredibly impoverished and bankrupt of your ability to love like this. Think about it like this. A few weeks ago, the Summer Olympics in Tokyo was all over our TVs, and I loved watching it and keeping up with it, especially the track and field portions of it. And I remember watching the high jump competition at one point, it's pretty incredible. These men and women can jump over a pole that's up, you know, taller than they are. It's, in, it's incredible. They back up a few feet, and then they get a big, they get a long running start, and they jump over this horizontal pole. And the, the longer that the competition lasts, the higher the pole gets, as some athletes can clear it and some athletes can't clear it. But I want you to imagine this. What if the high jump competition went like this? That you back up to where you start to run, and that pole is only at about four feet. And it looks manageable. It looks doable. Anybody can do that. But then with every step that you take towards that pole, it gets higher. So that by the time you get up to it, it's 100 feet tall. Imagine if the high jump competition worked like that. Because that's how the greatest commandment works. The closer you get to it, the more impossible it becomes. The more you realize what it's really asking you to do and who it's asking you to be, the kind of heart that it's requiring you to have that you and I don't have. The closer we get to it, the more we realize this is impossible. I can't do this, and I've never done this. The more, aware, the more aware that you become of what he's requiring you to do and who he's requiring you to be, the more impossible it becomes, which means that the greatest commandment, for you and me at least, it's not that great after all. Where do we go from there? Where does it take us? Where is the greatest commandment leading us? Well, I just wonder. I don't have any evidence for this. Mark doesn't tell us. I'm just using my sanctified imagination. But I feel like we have good evidence to believe that when Jesus spoke these words to the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I just wonder if there was a twinkle in his eyes and a smile on his face. Can you see Jesus like that? Mark doesn't tell us. I don't know. But I just wonder. Because his response to the scribe, as much as it is bad news, that in, in view of all that you've done and can do, you're still not there. In view of the bad news, there is still, in the same sentence and at the same time, good news that's beyond his wildest dreams. What is it? Well, it's the good news for you and me this morning? And it's this, when Jesus says to him, and when he looks at us and says you're not far from the kingdom of god he's also saying that you are literally standing 4 feet away from <laughs> from the one who has come to fully embody and represent the kingdom of god to this world the kingdom that's represented by the king himself he's literally standing right here looking you in the face and smiling at you you are not far from the kingdom of God. And your best efforts and your best strivings, they can't close that gap. They can't bridge that distance. They can't get you closer to the kingdom. And so the king himself has come to bridge that gap for you. Jesus says, I'm standing right here. You can't love your way into the kingdom. And so I've come to love you into it. The good news is not that you can be enough or do enough or love enough or change enough to close that gap that remains between where you are and where the kingdom is. The good news is that someone closes that gap for you, someone who is enough, someone who has done enough, and someone who is love himself. The good news is for people like us who have not kept the greatest commandment for two whole seconds in our lives, is that there is someone who came from heaven who kept this commandment perfectly by loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving you and me that way too. And it's how he's loving you right now with all of himself, all of his resources and energy and time and everything that he has bent around what's good for you and the glory of God. You see, the greatest commandment, this is where it leads us. It leads us to the greatest savior, to the greatest lover of your soul. It leads us to the one who loves us enough to lay down his life. And it leads us to then give that love back to others and back to God in a life of joyful gratitude and amazement that we're loved like this. May God make it so. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would amaze us for the first time or for the 10,000th time with the deep, deep love of Jesus, with love that never lets us go, with love that swallows up our poverty of love, and with love that energizes and warms our own capacity to love so that we can actually love with the love with which we have been loved. Our Lord, capture our hearts by that, we pray. Make us more loving as we get to know and as we, as we revel in the love of our Savior. And we pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.